I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that barbaric Englishman, Jeff Goad. <laughs> Traveling through space. How's it going? Good, good, good. And with us uh, this week is our special guest, Jeremy Farkas, author and creator of the World of Black Spire setting for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Hey, how you doing? Ooh, we have a 5th editioner on oh, here. Uh-oh. Hey, I, mm, I can explain. <laughs> I can explain. No, this gotta, is exciting. I like it. You got like to get the kids. You got you to gotta get the kids in. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you got to keep it young. Right. And this week we're reading Paul Anderson's The High Crusade. You know, before we get to the book, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, entrance into gaming and um, how you became aware of Appendix N as a concept? Let's see. I t- uh, by the time this will air, I'll have just turned 23. So, Ooh, yeah, yeah. I, I know I'm probably the youngest one that's been on here. But uh, when I started, uh, third edition was the was the game to play. I had a friend whose dad had been playing since first edition. And he's like, hey, uh, I just learned about this new game. You want to play it? And I was like, uh, OK, I guess there was virtually no rules for this. We never even rolled dice. It was completely devoid of anything. It was basically improv, but he like had like this vague understanding of how the rules worked. So he would like explain, well, maybe you can do this. You can't do that. Um, and I was like, this is amazing. And we did that for like a year. And then when that ended, I get kind of passed out of my life. It wasn't until high school that uh, a friend of mine was like, Hey, we're putting together another game. And I was like, Oh, and this was the time that fourth edition was around. And I played that for a while. And I was like, eh, I don't really know. And that was when I decided to take the initiative and run my own game. I went back and played Advanced Dungeons and Dragons because I had seen a lot of that before, and I was like, "This seems really cool." There's a lot more. There's a lot more flavorful, and so and it's advanced. Yes, yes. And I ran that for a while, and then Fifth Edition came out, and the group that was playing Fourth switched to Fifth, and I was kind of hesitant on it, but then I checked it out, and I was like, "Oh, this is a lot of this is really similar to, um, especially Second Edition Dungeons and Dragons, Mm -hmm. at least as far as um, like limitations on magic items, uh, how much gold you're going to get." Uh, the sense of danger, all of that is kind of still intact. And so I started running that for a while and now here I am. Cool. And how does this take us to Black Spire? Well, uh, Black Spire was uh, born out of the idea that the one thing that was missing from 5th edition was that really uh, strong embrace of uh, pulp and a lot of like appendix and literature. And I had, I was aware of it at the time. And so I started brainstorming, how can I incorporate all these things that I really like to read uh, more directly into the, into the game? And so it kind of became piecemeal out of that. I wanted to build a world that I would be excited to explore in. So, so Jeremy, did you become aware of Pulp and Appendix N simultaneously with your embrace of AD&D or as a result of playing AD&D? You know, I don't even remember. Um, I recall uh, I picked up the, the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide at a local con, and I saw the. I was looking through the appendices, and I saw it, and I was like, "Oh, I've read a couple of these." Um, and since then, I decided I was going to do what you guys are doing and try to read all of it. Yay! Uh, and then yeah. your podcast came out. I was like, "Oh my god, what's serendipity?" <laughs> uh, well, I gotta say, Jeremy, your path doesn't actually sound that different all than 
either of our pads. It's just substitute, uh, you know, 3E for, say, Redbox or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah Holmes, Holmes, and it's just mm. 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and- <laughs> or, or even t- uh, just because for me, it was, I started in 1990 with Advanced Dungeons yeah. & Dragons 2nd Edition when that was brand new. I, I didn't go back well, to 1st Edition until the OSR came around. Well, that uh, that's actually the same as me. I went back and played 2nd. Yeah. Uh, because that's what was available. It was really cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, OSR, I saw uh, a copy of DCC on a shelf at a local bookstore. And I'm like, that is the biggest role-playing game I have ever seen. And that was the only, re- that was the only reason I looked at it. And I was flipping through it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is great. And well, so that, I even pulled some it, of like the magic and stuff from that into Black Spire. Then you would love Spyhander if that's, if that's what... Uh... <laughs> if that's your criteria for... Uh, yeah. Oh man, I... Because that book is they're massive. All, they're all in front of me. They're all in front of me, not behind me. I've got like Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and yeah. stuff like that as well. So I don't have Lamentations of the Flame Princess, though. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the one on my well, list that I don't have. Uh, well, there's time to corrupt you yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, what spoke to you about the Appendix N literature as you, as you started delving deeper into it that, that kind of brought you you know, into deeper into pulp and into sort of the sort of darker, more primal sort of role playing. Uh, well, there's sort of a frantic energy to all of it and it all feels, uh, like raw and new. Like mm-hmm. they weren't, I mean, some of them were certainly aping off of the success of things like, um, the worm Ouroboros. I think mm-hmm. that's it Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, by ER Edison mm-hmm. or something to that effect. Um, and the stuff that came before them, but a lot of the stuff that we take for granted in modern role-playing, whether it's, you know, orcs or, uh, well, orcs is the obvious one, but, uh, beholders, demons, devils, dragons, like the rules for how these things work, all these things we take for granted, they had to kind of cook up on the spot. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool. And so that's, that really kind of pulled me into it. Uh, what, and the, and the opportunity that, oh, there's stuff in here that was pulled for role-playing, but there's other stuff in here that wasn't, what can we go back and find and, and incorporate to make it new and fresh? Okay. That sounds like a perfect uh, time to discuss the book of the week, which is, uh, Paul Anderson's high crusade. Uh, Jeff, do you want to get us on our Hygaxian word or anything else before we uh, dive into the book? Oh, sure. Um, so the Hygaxian word of the day is cleric, cleric. And uh, it's not a word that you really encounter much in the regular world prior to Dungeons and Dragons. So I wanted to highlight that. Cleric is found on page 12. He says, you're alerted cleric. And this is Roger who's speaking, uh, Sir Roger. You're alerted cleric, Brother Parvis, he said quietly, though his nostrils were white and his hair dank with sweat. And then again on page 56, we've got, nevertheless, until he's mastered enough English, a cleric is needed to talk to him. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to include that word in there because it's a word that's used for priests that um, D&D adopted as a whole character class. And we can chat more about that later if we want. Um, mm-hmm. but, but also, let's take a moment to look at the um, editions that we're currently working with. I, in my hand, have the 1975 paperback from Manor Books. It has an unknown artist on the cover, and I'm not even quite sure what's happening in this. It's some kind of a weird psychedelic image. It looks like there's like a an Olympic torch in the air that might be a spaceship <laughs> that's like floating above like a red ball and some ice cubes. I'm not really sure what's happening. Um, but on the back, it's got a pretty evocative description. It says, in the year 1345 AD by Earth Reckoning. 
the mighty Weskarisk, undisputed rulers of outer space, landed on Earth in their quest for new worlds to conquer. Their ship carried guided missiles and thermonuclear devices, but they had long since forgotten how to use the weapons necessary for hand-to-hand fighting. So they were easy prey for a band of knights armed with battle axes and broadswords, but it was a victory won by surprise and only temporary. The invaders were thousands of years ahead of Earth in in technical knowledge and knew countless ways of blowing up the whole planet. (laughs) (laughs) So which, which versions are you guys reading? How about you, Hoy? I actually found at the Brooklyn Public Library the first edition hardcover, double-day hardcover. Yeah, so it's also possibly the only good cover for this book. Um, we, we talked about this previously with Three Hearts and Three Lines. How come like Paul Anderson does not have any good cover art? It's very strange. <laughs> it's true. But, yeah. And Jeremy? Uh, I am reading, I believe, the 1983 Berkeley Science Fiction uh, paperback of The High Crusade. Uh, there's no credit... Uh, for a cover illustrator, although there is a signature on the cover that I can not read. Um, <laughs> but it features who I assume is Sir Roger uh, standing in front of the rocket ship that landed in Ainsbury. Mm. Uh, and he's got some really, really powerful looking legs. I'll say that. Much. <laughs> he's got some nice gams. Yeah. Mighty. mighty <laughs> oh, and, oh, and he's got a laser gun. I didn't even notice that. Oh, pew, yeah. pew. Mighty Thews. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You're right. The razor gunners with that little like cone cone tip. Yeah, it's very, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, nice. <laughs> there you go. So, what did you think of the book, guys? I liked it more than Three Hearts and Three Lines, but I think that um, it's moments where it sort of verges into cutesiness. Not as not as, not as much as Three Hearts and Three Lines. I think in that case. Um, and I can talk about why I think Gary might have liked this book, but I'll throw it to Jeremy for a second. Uh, I kind of disagree with you. Um, yeah. I think unlike you guys, I actually really enjoyed Three Hearts and Three Lions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was kind of a, a step down for me. This is definitely the, the weakest of his three. Oh, no. You like opinion. this less than Three Hearts and Three Lions? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually kind of like Three Hearts and Three Lions, like okay. I said. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, it isn't bad. It's just... Okay, uh, the, the the setup is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I feel like he kind of wasted the potential uh-huh. um, because you have the opportunity for these people to just go all over the stars and do all these amazing, crazy things. And they just land on one planet and stay there for mm-hmm. the most part. Right. That's true. Um, which is that's fine. It just it falls kind of kind of short. Uh, but I will say this is the most elaborate uh, character funnel I have ever seen. <laughs> uh, I might, I might have my uh, disagreements with the concept of the funnel, but boy, that's a unique one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I, I am surprised. It sounds like I'm the one here of the three of us who liked this one the most. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I was pretty meh, pretty lukewarm with uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions, but I had a lot of fun with the High Crusade. I thought it was inventive. I thought it was really fun and silly in a way that worked. Like I feel that with the face of the frost, with their silliness, I often found that it was at odds with the very serious horror that was being explored there. (laughs) But in the high crusade, I feel like it really worked just because like, I don't know. It's just like these characters are just kind of like running around and uh, being like you were talking about how this is the, um, a really great character funnel. I thought there was this really funny section on page 24 when they're all like loading into the ship and it's talking about how like (laughs) 
Here, a crossbowman tried to make a stubborn mule climb the gangway, his oaths laying many years in purgatory to his account. There, a lad chased a pig which had gotten loose. Here, a richly clad knight jested with a fine lady who bore a hooded falcon on her wrist. And it's just like it just like going on and like talking about all these like wacky characters who are like climbing aboard this ship. And just like the chaos of that moment, I just thought was really kind of charming and silly and fun and worked for me. Um, I'll say that it definitely captures the sense of um, sort of borderline anarchy of medieval life. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. like when you see the tapestries or you like the um, the Chaucer's you know Canterbury Tale. So you see like from the high to low in the society, you have John Hayward who's like a yeoman, you know, and he's sort of always like blustering and cursing. And you have um, you know they have the stereotypes about the Welsh knight and stuff like that. So I think that was successful. And I do think they actually captured. Uh, certain aspects of the medieval mindset, which are just as alien to us as the aliens themselves. So I think he was quite successful in that mm-hmm. regard. Um, talking about you know, their piety, but their ability to sort of justify various things like, well, we're not exactly lying to the aliens. We're just kind of withholding the truth. You know, so that's not a major sin, right? Right. You know? Now, uh, so. going back to the comedic element of this, uh, are you aware that this was made into a movie? I am. And I'm also aware that Paul Anderson was advised not to watch it because it's so bad. And he, it's, it's, it's farcical. It's, it's, it's overtly comedic and not very good. Yeah. It was made in 1994 and it stars, what's his face? Um, the guy who played the, the dwarf, uh, who played, John Reese Davies. Yeah. John Reese Davies nice. stars in it. I think he's brother Parvis. Um, yeah. or maybe he's Sir Raj. I forget who he is. Um, but yeah, it's bad. <laughs> Did you guys catch it on YouTube or is it available for streaming or what's the situation with the, with the movie on this one? Uh, I know that you can get it on Amazon. I don't know about uh, other okay. platforms. All right. It'll go into the show notes with a warning, a big caveat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there are multiple well, versions well, of it. It was, it was, it's a French film and there's like two different dubs or subtitles. One is like really comedic uh, and the other's not. Uh-oh. Oh, jeez. So maybe the maybe the Turkish version is the one to watch. There you go. Just like <laughs> Turkish Star Wars. <laughs> one thing I thought was also really successful with the writing of this story, though, is I thought they did a really great job of having these characters kind of experience this through the, through the eyes of uh, medieval knights and through the eyes of people who are actively in the Crusades. Um, I, don't know, I thought that I thought that worked really well. The whole like sorcery can't harm good Christians kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of stuff. Well, it's 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 great fodder for uh, um, designing religion um, in a campaign setting um, because usually in like in Dungeons and Dragons, vanilla D anD D, you just kind of have your gods that are like isolated from each other and are just like of this thing, and you pray to them occasionally, but it doesn't really matter. Um, but with, with the elements here, it's like very involved. It's like interwoven into the culture, which is the way it was, uh, back in the 1300s. Right. And in fact, we're put in the position of the, well, we, I don't know about we, the reader, uh, it's time the book came out, but certainly me and put in the position more of the worst Gorics where we're like, we're not really understanding. Oh, they're talking about religion. Oh, do you mean the consciousness? No, no, (laughs) no. no. It's different. The souls, the souls like what, what, (laughs) you know, you know, um, Oh, you mean a recording of the brain waves that, you, that we can use after death? It's like, no, no, the soul. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. And so, uh, um, so, you know, I think, yeah, theologically, I, I think, I think um, as an act of world building, you're right. I think that's definitely, um, if we do want to incorporate the cleric, and I know, Jeff, we have had a long discussions about that. If we have to have the cleric, then the religion has to mean something, right? And so it clearly does mean something in this book. Don't worry, Jeff. I took the cleric out of Black Spire. Ooh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. 
And one, one thing that also really cracked me up too, there's that moment where they rescue some princess and it says, true, she had green hair and feathery antenna, nor was there any possibility of issue between her species and our own. Um, and then it goes on a little bit where he's talking about how like, you know, she's still very good looking. And then it says, whether or not the prohibitions of Levit- Leviticus are applicable is still being hotly debated. <laughs> <laughs> that cracked me up so much yeah. <laughs> oh man um but yes yeah, so the yeah the the cleric is definitely not the cleric of D in this at least like they're not he's, he's not a mm-hmm. spellcaster he's not making miracles he's more kind of a diplomat i guess yeah he's like a right. just a, a sage and a diplomat i guess would be the the right answer for that for 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 fifth edition he would be a a first level fighter with uh, the sage background, certainly or the, or the um, acolyte. That's the one. Sure. Now, one thing that I, because although I did really enjoy this book, um, there were still issues that I had with it. I, I was a little, um, I, I didn't quite love that brother Parvis was our main narrator, considering that he wasn't around for most of the really major scenes. Um, I, I thought sometimes that was kind of awkward the way that they handled yeah. that. He would, he would, uh, he would be like, well, I don't know that this is what they said, but I feel this is probably what they said. Totally. And it's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. At one point, like it on page one twenty two, it says, I come now to a grievous part of this history and the most difficult to write, nor was I present save at the very end. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so you weren't even there for it. And you're giving us like your account of it. And it's and also and this is probably nitpicky, but it also kind of bugs me when um, when I read something that's supposedly like a found manuscript, which is what this is. Like it, it, they they found yeah. this like this this thing that the Brother framing Harvest device implies that yeah yeah. But if it's a found manuscript, I don't know why he would write it in the way that it's written with you know dialogue and because if if somebody was just like writing an account of what happened, they wouldn't put down. Look over there," said Lady Catherine. Like they were just saying, "Oh, and Lady Catherine asked me to look over there." You know, like that, that, <laughs> right, that's right. not the way that one would write an account of something like this. Um, so it's it's a silly nitpick, but it is something that I thought made it a little bit less successful for me. Right. Well, I think there's two things. Uh, two things to hit on with that. Um, to address your most immediate point. Um, it's a weird literary convention. Sometimes you have to forget about it. But even like in the Jane Austen books, sometimes you say, oh, this was under, uh, my recounting of such and such. And sometimes they have these digressions where the author comes in and then, and then they, then you forget that you're in the novel Yeah, and you, you know, you get back into the scene. So it's, it's a convention that's been used, but not as much now, I think. Um, your point about the narrator not being present and, and then saying, oh, this was, this was happening even though I wasn't there. I think that is Paul Anderson, um, boxing himself in unintentionally because probably in his mind, the only character who could have recounted this was brother Parvis because all the other characters are probably illiterate. And so therefore he had to have brother Parvis tell the story, but at the same point he couldn't have brother Parvis present for every single scene of importance. So then he sort of unintentionally boxed himself in and then therefore had to create these little caveats. And so it is clumsy. That, sound, that does sound like Paul Anderson where, um, cause he's so passionate about history or he was, that right. he's like, no one else could possibly write this. He's the only one who can read. It's like, well, right. you could work something out, I'm sure. 
That's a good point. Right. And also right. considering that this wasn't written as a novel, it was written in installments and in, I believe astonishing magazine or something. I forget what the, which, oh. which pulp magazine it was. Uh, astounding. astounding. Yeah. in astounding. Yeah. Um, I also think it's very possible that initially he may have seen it as something that would have been from brother Parvis's perspective, but then as he had already given a couple of installments realized like, Oh, brother Parvis really can't be in this scene. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to like acknowledge that. Um, I don't know. Cause that, that's one thing that's tricky about if you just, if you write a novel, you have the, you have the ability to go back and change anything you want in a second or a third draft. But if each installment is right. being published, you don't really have the flexibility to go back and change anything. Right. Right. I think also a third level of this, which is kind of interesting is maybe a sort of meta commentary on the unreliability of history as it's transmitted to us. Oh, so, I was desperate. <laughs> well, while, yeah. while reading this, I felt like there's there's some kind of allegory going on here, and I I yeah. cannot figure it out for the life of me. I don't know if it's just because I wasn't around at the time that it was written, and I'm not aware of the the relevant yeah. issues of the day of the day. But yeah. I don't know. Feels like there's something else going on because if it if there isn't, it's just like a very basic, simple little story. Um, I, I noticed on the, one of the themes that talked about. I mean, it hasn't brought up in this book. Um, in we haven't read that much of Paul Anderson. Is the sort of conflict between sort of supposedly more advanced civilizations and sort of primitive civilizations and you can't underestimate the privilege the primitives and in this case we the humans are the primitives rather than the sort of all-knowing space conquerors so i think that's one of the themes that was playing out and i agree it's it's very um, conan saying, in that way it's very much like you know right, right. civilization corrupts you on some level and makes you weak and vulnerable to kind of the more prim- primal and primitive um, sides of humanity. Sure, mm. sure. And, and also, Jeremy, as you're talking about history, um, this was not, you know, the Vietnam War hadn't hotted up right at that point yet because it was 1960, right. but there was a lot of the decolonialization movements were happening in Africa and Latin America and all that at that time. So there could be a little bit of that sort of hooking into with, you know, sort of the push for modernity that was happening in you know 1950s and 1960s. Mm, so I don't know. Okay, it could be a little bit of a level of that there. I like that. So that's good. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, I think it's a, it's a good um, it's a good book for regardless of the literary merits. I think it's a very strong book for concepts to be brought into your games. And maybe that's saved for the second half of the podcast. But you know, in terms of as you said, is it is it a character funnel? Is it a good uh, uh, attempt to model religions. There are other things that we can talk about too, but I think those are two good starting points to talk about what we can pull out of them. I, I would definitely want to talk about uh, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks at the very least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have a favorite character? Uh, possibly John Hayward, although he's not in it that much, who's, who is the uh, the yeoman archer. I, I'd say my favorite character would probably have to be Branathar. Um, uh, just because he's... Uh, well, he's in it through most of the story, which helps. But uh, this this poor little alien man, he's just he's just doing his job. He lands on this planet. All of his friends die. And then all of these these uh, these savages are bullying him and telling him to take it, telling him to take them to the Holy Land or to France. And he's like, I don't know what any of that is. Uh, and like, despite the fact that he's total, he's almost completely under their power at any opportunity, he will betray them. I like that. That's great. My favorite character is only really featured on two pages, but do you guys remember One-Eyed Hubert? 
Oh yeah, the executioner. Uh, yeah, the executioner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I loved him. So um, yeah, we've got one-eyed Hubert here, and he's this executioner who's who's just the, the sweetest guy. And he comes up to um, is it Sir Roger or Brother Parvis? I forget. And he's like, uh, "Tis not that I mean to criticize. That ain't old Hubert's place." And he knows his humble place. And like he, he goes on, he's just kind of being like, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry to bother you. However, you know, your father used to execute people all the time and torture them. And I had a lot of work and I was really busy and I, I really enjoyed that. And you might want to consider torturing more and executing more. <laughs> so finally, he agrees to have um, to have Branathar tortured a little bit to get a secret out of him. So like he goes up and he's like got his torture devices. Ranathar immediately is like, oh, 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 never mind. I'll talk. I'll tell <laughs> you. Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so then they decide that they're going to cancel the torturing. And then Sir Roger says, um, Brother Parvis, could you break the news to Hubert? I confess I don't have the heart to tell him. <laughs> Such a great it's, moment. It's so pure. <laughs> yeah. It's got a little um Python-esque, I'd yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the executioner that's a little too into his work, but he's a really nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I could totally see like Terry Jones playing. Yeah. Him, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah. yeah, and I guess that's why maybe the, the, the comedy worked for me because it wasn't just like slapstick silliness. It like there, there, there's like a human element to it. You know what I mean? Like you, it's it's hilarious that the executioner's doing that, but it's also something that's like kind of oddly relatable in that moment too. Like you can see, like you know, if you've got something you really care about that you're passionate about, you want to be able to do it. And it's funny that Paul Anderson chooses to kind of explore that that kind of very human part with the executioner in that moment. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a he he plays with expectations in a way that I think is is fun and effective. Yeah, I will say that the comedy in this tends to be more character-driven than situationally driven. I think, for example, the uh, the governor uh, of the West Gorex, Hurugu, he's quite funny also when they're having their little asides and they're negotiating mm-hmm. with each other, and they're not aware that the humans can understand them, <laughs> and, and they're all speaking they're all speaking very loudly because they come from a planet with a dense atmosphere, so they don't understand that you know people can hear them, you know what they right, think or right. they're whispering. <laughs> so. Or when uh, Lady Catherine and um, and Owain Montbell uh, fly off together. And they're talking about how the spaceship was the best chaperone because they both needed to be up constantly to be uh, to, to to be on watch. So whenever one was awake, the other one was asleep. Uh, so she was still able to be to be pure and and not um, not go back on her vows. Oh, I don't even remember yeah. that. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, that cracked me up. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they definitely really did get into the the sort of medieval. Uh, concept, you know, courtly love, you know, uh, those kind of things that they really played that out, you know, the idea of the troubadour. So I think he did it, and but with a relatively light touch, instead of saying, and this is how the knights behave to their ladies, he just had it come out through the course of the story. So I give him definitely props for that. Absolutely. Didn't, didn't read like a manuscript. Did not read like a manuscript right. of uh, of the day right. or, or of uh, like a history book. Totally, because right, that was right. the thing that really bugged me when when I when the, with the one Lynn Carter we've read so far is if Lynn Carter had writ- written this, we would have gotten these like big blocks of paragraphs telling us about like the ancient history of these things, and it's like I don't I don't need all of that information. Just just tell me what I need to know th- by 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 watching the characters experience this. You know what I mean? I don't want to just read blocks of info dumps. 
Uh, and if you're going to do it, you have to do it in more of a witty, Vancean way, where you sort of uh, it advances, it becomes its own little side story that you know. But I think that's what Lynn Carter was attempting to do, but he's just not very good at oh, it. Oh man! Whereas you know, Jack Vance is much better. I at loved it, when so. Lynn Carter did that stuff. I thought it was just like a, a cute little because uh, it was obvious that none of it really had anything to do with the story. So it was just like a little little snip right. where you could like spark your imagination and start wondering about all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it's just the, the level of execution at it. And, you know, maybe we'll we'll get more into it when with the uh, or we'll get into that as we get further into the then uh, Carter works. Yeah, I am curious. I'm, I'm hoping that as we explore his stuff, we'll like it more because that's certainly been my experience with Paul Anderson, you know, because I. I didn't hate Three Hearts and Three Lions. There was there was a lot of there there were, there was a lot about it to like. I just thought, I, and actually, and it's interesting. What I what I I think I liked least about Three Hearts and Three Lions is I didn't feel like any of the characters had any personality or depth. It, it and in the High Crusade, these characters are dripping with personality and depth. So that, it's uh, also kind of interesting to me. Didn't you have a little bit of a sense of that of that shallowness um, with the later Harold Shea stories as well, though? Um, I mean, I certainly, I certainly had that problem. Like I, I read all like the first five though. So I probably went a little bit further than you guys, where it's just like, they become very, um, no, I would, I would tend to agree. I mean, I think a lot of times the Harold, the Harold Shea characters were sort of spokes, uh, mouthpieces for, for Elspreg the camp sort of like, aren't I cleverer than <laughs> yeah, the situation? Yeah. That's fair. Sort of, yeah. yeah. And I <laughs> well, feel like with Elspreg so. the camp, at least with the Harold Shea stories, Harold Shea himself was fun and entertaining and also the situations he was in and the stories that were unfolding were often entertaining enough to make up for it for me. Where with Three Hearts and Three Lions, I felt like I had kind of bland characters. And it also, it was, it was, it, it felt like they were kind of bumbling from scene to scene and it didn't really seem like it was building towards anything. Like, like, you the, can, like the werewolf scene. Yeah. And like, you can make the same argument with Kugel, you know, cause in, in eyes of the overworld, it really is just kind of vignette after vignette, but they're each of those vignettes are so like incredibly flavorful and entertaining that I don't mind that I'm kind of going from scene to scene until we get to the end. And maybe they don't actually have much to do with the final story, but I'm just enjoying the ride so much. And that wasn't my experience mm-hmm. with three hearts and three lines. So Jeremy, it sounds to me that, you were disappointed that they didn't take advantage of the potential scope of the story. Um, was there other things that sort of brought the story down a, a notch for you in terms of, of honestly what brought it down the most, and this is no fault of the book. Uh, it was the fact that I read the broken sword first. Mm-hmm. That is a that. masterpiece of the 20th century. That is one of the best books on appendix N so far that I've read. It is I so haven't good. read it yet, but almost everybody I know says that it's the best of the three that Gygax yeah. recommended. And that one might, might even be worth reading twice. Uh, the only reason I mention that is that the print was a uh, print editions have been, were re- revised by uh, Anderson in the late '60s or early '70s, whereas the original edition is now available as an ebook. And it's minor changes, but it's I, I actually noticed that because I, I read the book and then I listened yeah. to the audiobook, and like there's like a mention of an oni somewhere in there that's changed to a devil. Like really, really small stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, um, you know, he was using more sort of uh, ornate language in the original edition, and then he sort of streamlined it in the, you know, for, so I'm, I'm definitely going to go back and read the print one because I've read the, mm-hmm. the ebook, and that's, it's, it's savage and everything you mentioned. But that's, that's another episode. Hopefully <laughs> we'll get to it. I think that's episode 56. Yeah, so like that. maybe in two so, years from now. Um, yeah. Jeremy, 
Gary Gygax specifically re- recommends that we read Three Hearts and Three Lions, The High Crusade, and The Broken Sword. Why do you think The High Crusade is on that list? Well, um, there is... I have, I have two schools of thought on this. Okay, hit me. Uh, the first is that... Um, and this is going to sound really crass, but the first is that um, Appendix N wasn't like this Holy Grail reference. Mm -hmm. It was more just like, uh, what's out at the time that I like? Sure. Uh, Because there's some stuff in there that's really baffling as to why it's there. Um, But What's one that really baffles you? um, Oh, God. Let me think. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, The Carnelian Cube. Okay. I haven't read that one yet. Uh, It's Inception, the book. Okay. <laughs> Basically. Uh, but it's really, really wacky and uh, DeCampian. <laughs> like, he's the main character is a one for one for uh, Harold Shea. Like, there's no, there's virtually no difference. Yeah. Even down to yeah. like, they're both like college teachers and. <laughs> That's uh, great. But Sorry, my other, I- my other theory uh, would be that. Um, he probably chose um, the High Crusade, obviously, first of all, for its um, era significance. Um, it, it, it does a lot to inform the reader while entertaining them about what to expect in a in a medieval or in the case of Dungeons and Dragons, pseudo medieval world. Yeah. Um, it also does a lot to inform uh, the importance of religion, um, which can also kind of uh, feed into theories about stuff like alignment languages and stuff where, oh, uh, lawful good alignment language is just ancient, like Latin or something like that. Um, and then obviously the overt science fiction element, um, because he like he liked to inject other genres into it. It wasn't just straight fantasy. And of course yeah. at the time it was all, just, it was all the same. Everything was fair game. Yep. Sci-fi fantasy horror. It was all part of the same pot. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Plus who doesn't like uh mixing swords and lasers? Yeah, heck yeah. Um, Actually, I know the answer to that. His name is Andrew Sternick. He doesn't like it. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Hoy, why do you think that Gary Gygax recommended for us to read The High Crusade? Yeah, I would tend to agree with the uh, second set of reasons that you gave, Jeremy, because I think that he actually, this book probably did actually mean a lot to him. Um, We know that Gygax was um, sort of an amateur medievalist, and so he would have been into anything that could really talk about in great detail uh, about the medieval, you know, medieval period. Um, also, I think, um, again, as a war gamer, it would have been maybe fascinating to him to see the scenario of, well, how would a bunch of English knights and yeomen defeat aliens with laser guns, right? And so I think there was that, that level of creativity. So that might spark that creativity in him. Um, so I think he probably, it wasn't like, oh, um, this book that was just on the shelf. Um, this one probably was on his shelf for longer than that is my, is my take on it. Um, so I think those those things are there, um, as you mentioned before. That you want, not wanting to talk about um, expedition to the Barrier mm. Peaks certainly, I think it influenced that. You know, suddenly these people are they don't have any understanding how this stuff works, but they know a gun when they see one. It's like okay, point trigger, point at alien. Well, you know? um, <laughs> so. I think uh, you guys will get to this eventually, but um, the Fred Saberhagen uh, story. I don't remember the name of it, but it's it's the one that's listed specifically, and I have it in an anthology called Empire of the East, Changing Earth. Um, Changeling Earth, which was actually renamed. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I can't even remember what the name of it is now anyway. But that That'll be is episode like, 105 for us. Oh, geez. Well, that's one to one with Expedition <laughs> to the Barrier Peaks, really. Okay. Not one to one, but it's, it's been a while close. since I looked at Yeah, yeah, cool. 
So yeah. I think one of the reasons why Gary might have been especially keen on sharing this with us is other than the fact that like, it's obviously completely up Gary's alley. This is mm-hmm. very, this is very a Gary Gygax selection here. Um, but also I feel like it's a really great example of how to play pseudo medieval characters you know, these, these characters don't see the world the way that we see them. We, they see it very much through the lens of their reality. And I think um, kind of the, the, the jokes about, um, you know, I don't know if this is allowed in Leviticus or whatever, but like it's, it's, it, it, gives you, it gives the reader an opportunity to be like, oh, if I'm playing a cleric, I'm going to be very focused on this, like on being pious. And how can I kind of bring that into the situation that we're currently playing? Or, um, you know, maybe I'm really concerned with chivalry or something like that. Um, I think that aspect of it is, I think, something that Gary probably wanted to share with other people. Because I, 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 can, I can also see Gary Gygax being annoyed when he's, like, trying to play, uh, teach people Dungeons and Dragons, but they're all just playing it as though they were, you know, contemporary people. I can see him being like, that's not, that's not the way that they would look at it, you know. And, and I, I, I could see him being like, Read the High Crusade. Like that'll oh, show that you. Sounds... <laughs> well, you hit you hit really close to home with that one. <laughs> yeah. So I I, I I can see I can totally see Gary doing that. Um, and also reading this, it's kind of deepening my understanding of why the cleric is in the game now, or why Gary wanted the cleric to be in the game. So clearly, this is not the D and D cleric. He's not casting spells. Whatever. Um, however, you know, I know that Gary Gygax was like a religious dude. I also know that he was very into, you know, medievalism and Mm. this book is just dripping with, um, with, with, um, like Christianity, but like, just like in in the sense that the characters are very much like that's the, that's the lens that they see everything through. So I think the cleric class might exist as just a way of potentially, adding that element to kind of the sword and sorcery Conan world. Like let's bring in some kind of crusades element to it. But then once he's going to, once he's like, okay, well I'll bring the cleric into this, but like what makes the cleric different than the fighter? You know, Oh, I'll give them some God magic. Like I I think maybe they just kind of tacked something on to make it unique in some way. But I can, I think it might be more likely that it was in reverse. It's like, Oh, they have these powers from the gods. Oh, that's kind of close to a wizard. Let's give him some fighting ability. Either way, it's... I mean, I think uh, one other origin, and so I think the very first uh, sort of attempt at the cleric was in Dave Arneson's campaign, and so that was really more like Dr. Van Helsing, the ability to turn undead. But then then Gary, you know, so he wanted, you know, turn undead, but then Gary's like, well, no, if there's going to be a a holy figure, then it's going to be, they got to be more like, you know, Friar Tuck or somebody like that, you know, bring, so again, to bring that veneer of medievalism back onto the game, instead of it just being an anything goes, um, you know, I still don't understand why the monk is in the game. I, I know people liked watching the show Kung yeah. Fu back then, but, but yeah. also <laughs> the monk and the Druid were not Gygax creations. So those were where we start to right. kind of get people who are potentially making character classes, not, not, not because they're finding it in the appendix end, but because they think it's a neat thing to add. Uh, now, do we know uh, which came first between the cleric and the paladin? I'm assuming it's the cleric. Yeah, the cleric is in the original OD&D box set. The 1974 okay. very first booklet only had three classes. 
And the three classes were fighting man, magic user, and cleric. Okay. Okay. This is even before the thief was a class. Right. I knew that there were only three. I didn't remember which ones they were. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the paladin too, because the paladin is some, the word paladin is used in three hearts and three lions uh, quite a bit. The word cleric is used quite a bit in the high crusade. So it's interesting that Gary Gygax takes these, these kind of medieval nouns that Paul Anderson is kind of tossing around um, and then puts them into the game, but then kind of gives the, gives them some special powers to make them unique and different in some way, which is kind of similar to like, when you look at what's happened with a lot of the magic using classes in D and D, like you look at fifth edition and oh my God. in fifth edition, you've got a wizard yeah. and a sorcerer and a warlock. And they are three distinct different things that have different ways in which they use their magic. But in appendix and literature, Calling somebody, you could call the same character a magician and then a warlock and then a sorcerer and then a wizard in the, it, it, from, from paragraph to paragraph. And it doesn't mean that they're right. different. They're just different words to describe them. Well, again, I think that taps into the um, nerd desire to yeah. categorize everything. That's into, fair. You know, <laughs> you At this level, you're a necromancer. Uh, you know, At this level, you're an evoker. Right. And also people love right, character right. options. You know. So maybe they're just like, what are all of the nouns yeah. that we can think of that are related to fantasy fiction? And let's make a list of those. And right. now let's come up with powers that make each of these things different somehow. If you want to see that to the nth right, degree, right. Uh, go to the Dungeon Masters Guild. Um, that's where they, that's where they, it's a, it's an official platform where they put up all of the homebrewed fifth edition stuff. Okay. Uh, the number of classes you will find that, ev- that rely on a, a really old uh, uh, title uh-huh. are just uh, exhaustive. Uh, you want to play a, 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 pu- a pugilist? Go right ahead. You're just a, 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 you're just a punching man from level one to twenty. <laughs> I mean, the same is right. true with the second edition splat books. Like you open up the oh, complete yeah. fighter's guide, and here you've got cavalier and crusader and <laughs> berserker and pit fighter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think that uh, there's no there's no game that's immune to that, right? Even DCC, not DCC as written, but everybody's always creating a third party oh, yeah. class for DCC. You, you can play a chicken, but I think that's where. Well, I mm, right. I, I was thinking about um, a worse score class. Oh, there you go. Uh, okay. Although I don't have the time to make one, so if anyone else wanted to, go right ahead. <laughs> would you make it for fifth edition, or would you make it for DCC? I would start with it in DCC because I think that would be easier just because it's 10 levels instead of 20. Yeah. Um, but right. well, maybe not because if it was in Dungeons and Dragons, it would be a race and that would be pretty, that might be pretty quick to do. Fair. Now, if you were going to run the high crusade as an adventure, which gaming system would you want to use? Honestly, I think it might be astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea. Ooh, good answer. Uh, largely because there are so many magic items that are just alien tech. Yeah. And there's, there's such a strong establishment of extraterrestrials Mm -hmm. in the, in the monsters for that book. Mm -hmm. Um, Although uh, I think, I think uh, Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition is very versatile in what it can do. So I could probably do it in that as well. And I know I could definitely do it in uh, DCC. Although in DCC that might, it might be a funnel. It it just might be a funnel. Uh, And the, the adventure starts when they land on the, on after the first battle on the alien planet. I'm into it. How about you, Hoy? Uh, I've been playing a bit of BX lately, so I could always do, you know, anything can be done in BX, right? Whether it's done well, (laughs) is another story, but, uh, (laughs) um, so BX, I could certainly see it. Um, I guess it depends on, there's nothing ever that ever becomes completely out of human scale in this game, other than the actual weapons themselves. 
So I could see this being done even in Traveler. Mm. Um, you know, as because right. what is it? You know, they have they have some zero zero gravity yeah. stuff with longbows. Um, I could see this being done in GURPS again because you never got out of human scale. I, so I could see this like a 150 yeah. point GURPS game. I did. I did just have a thought of um, running something like this in uh, Starfinder. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that oh, game. Yeah, Pathfinder okay. in yeah. space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Sp- Pathfinder in yeah. space. But don't tell them that they're playing Starfinder. Let that be the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I'm kind of mad at this book for I giving away that. the fact. Uh, well, giving away what they do with the spaceship on the on the description on the back. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> um, yeah, those are all great answers. I, I really like the astonishing swordsman. Um, answer and I personally think I probably want to do something a little faster and looser than Astonishing Swordsman for this. I might want to do something like the Black Hack, um, but I, I totally, I totally see where you're coming from with that. I think that's mm. good. Um, one thing that I thought was also really interesting in this was um, kind of the the warfare tactics they used, and some of them were very D and D, and some of them are things that I feel like I never see in D and D. But there's a moment where they they keep one alive for questioning, which ends up being uh, Branthon oh, uh, which is like a, a total a D and D trope, and it's always a good idea to you know keep one goblin alive so you can torture it and question it. Um, but also, there's one moment too where after they're fighting a war, it says that they had captured as many as they had slain, and I have a hard time imagining a D and D party capturing half of a of an army and not just murdering them. Well, do they have an army backing them <laughs> up though? There's a lot of stuff that that an army will just do without the players telling them to do it. That's a good point. That's that, that could be on the DM side of that. I, I right. hadn't thought of it that way. Right. 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 This is also why I think BX might be a good version of this because BX sort of sort of edges into the start into the domain game. And I guess good point. the act, you know, acts, I guess would be the, the epitome of that. Yeah. yeah. The, immor- the immortal box um, would definitely be for uh, once they, uh, the end of the book. Right. Once they discover yeah. the Star Empire, like, you know, the, 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 the Earthlings finally <laughs> discover what happened to the uh, Sir Rogers people. Totally. And, and Hoy, what, I'm forgetting the name right now. What is the Arthurian um, domain game RPG? Pen, Pendragon? Yeah, or, this uh, could be another round yeah. of Pendragon in space. <laughs> right, right. You have the winter sprinkle season. A little, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe don't sprinkle a little Call of Cthulhu in there. Huh. <laughs> right. You have the winter season, and then so now, now you have the space Ooh. season for, for uh, Pendragon. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, as you say, I mean, Pendragon is derived from basic role playing, so you could easily. Yeah, you could. I don't know if you should. If you want to, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, should never stop no, anybody in role playing games. So you encounter the fungi from Yugath. What do you do? Yeah. Uh, right. 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 So, Jeremy, in Blackspire, do you have alien tech and aliens and things of this nature? So, um, the, the the largest I I only have like one substantial thing uh, published right now, um, and that is uh, Sakraf's Encyclopedia Sor- Sorcerium, which is just a, it's a book of book of spells and magic. Um, which okay. is uh, in that I have uh, all the different rules for how to do a more maybe DCC or sword and sorcery style magic system for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but in the back of that, I have a bunch of magic items and uh, drawing inspiration from astonishing swordsmen. Um, I put a couple like laser guns in there uh, just to kind of like tease it. And now with the project I'm working on right now, uh, which is a book of monsters, uh, there's a lot of aliens in there. Most of them, most cool. of them are, um, 
the most of the ones that are explicitly alien are just like um uh mythos monsters um but there are a couple like uh, pan dimensional beings that could be aliens you're not really sure it's kind of left vague and up to the imagination but nothing nothing in the sense of little green men from mars cool so with uh so the overall flavor that you were uh, aiming for in black spire sort of a sort of more dark for swords and sorcery would there be a room for something like a high crusade a little more lighthearted approach to appendix and in that in that setting or is that something that's just oh it's certainly possible you know? um yeah you i mean there's some there's some kind of kind of uh there's some lighter stuff in there um in the in the monster book i definitely pull as much from uh like fairy folk mythology and um horror story i pull equally from all different directions which i don't know how well that's going to blend we'll see um but it, the the intent behind it was kind of a blend of um what was predominantly lovecraft uh clark ashton smith and uh robert e howard but i think there's i think there's room um for a little bit lighter something i, I haven't tried it yet but i'm definitely willing to now, while you were reading the High Crusade, was there anything that kind of leapt out from you as like, oh, I want to include this in Black Spire, or, or, or oh, I want to include this in the next time I run a game? Really, really, like I said before, I really, really like the idea of just an alien spaceship landing and just coming out and announcing to the people, we are here to take over, and uh-huh. th- them being just like, what? No, no, and then they kill all of them. Uh, that is a great start to an adventure. It is. It is. Um, and my first uh, DCC game I, I ever ran, um, it ended with the the players um, discovering a an alien spaceship that worked, and they flew it away off into the sunset. And I was like, I don't know where to take it from here, so I'm just going to end it. But now I know where to take it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now I know exactly where to take it. For one one thing that I I had that moment with was when they were uh, laying siege upon the the larger of the space stations. I'm forgetting what it's called, and how the the siege worked really quickly because they didn't have any kind of um, they didn't have any food and um, resources they needed. So they they oh, they, yeah. they they gave up pretty quick. Um, but I was thinking, like, I think it would be neat to either be under siege or to lay siege upon a town in my games. I've never been a part of either side of that. That would be that would be a strong second for something I'd want to incorporate. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. I, I can't even recall an adventure where that happens. The only one I can think of is I know that in Brennan LaSalle's Neon Knights, um, the town th- th- that town is under siege from these like very strange un other otherworldly entities. Hmm. Um, so like leaving the town isn't really much of an option. I mean, you can certainly try, uh, but it's probably not going to go so well for you. Sounds like an adventure from the point of view of the worst scores. I saw there's a castles and crusades one, but the title escapes me where there's a town under siege and then you have to go into one of the areas to under siege to retrieve some objects. So you have to cross enemy territory. Um, I think it's in the I series of castles and crusades. Yeah. Well, I, I actually do remember. Um, it's not an adventure, but it is a single piece of art. Uh, from, I want to say, the Player's Handbook for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition. There's this great full-page illustration of these orcs in the fog, like, putting their ladders up against this big wall and, like, climbing over it, and they've got their pikes Ooh. and spears. And I always remembered that being super evocative, but I haven't thought about That's it in cool. years. That's cool. <laughs> 
Well, guys, we are starting to run out of time. Is there any kind of last thing that you want to make sure that you get a chance to talk about before um, we wrap up? I would say that this book also, one thing that we haven't talked about is that there are numerous scenes of negotiation in this book and uh, with the various alien races, mm. uh, both to bring them on board and to, uh, you know, some of the, sub- the subjugated races that are subject to the Wascorix and then with the actual Wascorix themselves. So I think that that is an opportunity to examine um, faction role play and like what do factions want and what are they willing to give up, um, especially once you start getting towards the domain game. And so that's mm-hmm. always something that we sort of gloss over in our uh, urge to get to the action. But what if the negotiation is the action? I like it. So yeah, that's where the yeah. There's a lot to pull out of this. It's maybe not my favorite as a book book, but I think it still was not 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 enjoyable. So <laughs> there you go. No, it's definitely rife with uh, inspiration yeah. and ideas. Oh, and that's true of anything that we've discussed here. Even even something like the Blue Star, there it still had a we we still had a fun conversation with it, regardless. So, Jeremy, where can we uh, where can we find your works? So, um, the best place to find my stuff would be on Facebook.com slash Blackspire Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the official page uh, for the World of Blackspire. Um, I'll post uh, there. Um, I'll post updates for the things that I'm writing. Um, I may do a little snippet about uh, the lore of the world, or just um, in general, I might conduct a poll for what I should work on next. Uh, alternatively, you can also go to uh, Patreon.com/slash/BlackspireFantasy, um, and there is where I actually post all of my uh, work, at least so far. Uh, there you can find. Um, and they, these are free to anyone. Uh, you can find my book of spells and magic, or uh, I have a, a little little document on uh, playing lizard men that I really enjoyed working Ooh. on. Um, but those would be the two places to check. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to be putting uh, my book of monsters yet, um, because as it stands right now, it does it is uh, under the terms of service uh, it agrees with the terms of service of the dungeon masters guild, guild platform so i might put it there uh but they take half the money if i do that so i don't know way, way more people will see it that way sure, so sure. it'll either be on the dungeon masters guild or it will be it'll probably you know it'll definitely go on to the patreon.com slash blackspire fantasy first um at least and that'll be available to patrons uh, just got to give at least a dollar terrific we'll uh, definitely put that in the show notes so that people know what to look out for it and um so and the it monster- should be out by the time this airs terrific yay okay jeff any last words no that's it so uh jeremy thank you so much for being on the show it was fun having a uh 23 year old perspective <laughs> oh geez and a 5e perspective oh geez <laughs> And I got to say, man, like, you know, your Appendix N on a level that most people my age, Hoy's age and older, I don't seem to. So I, <laughs> I got to give you mad props for that. <laughs> Thank you. You've definitely done your homework. I, I would turn the camera and show you the shelf in front of me. Behind me is just the role playing games. In front of me is all the books. <laughs> Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's great. Okay. So uh, coming up next, we have uh, Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber. And following that is Michael Moorcock's Stormbringer. God, what an awesome set of books. Indeed. indeed. So Jeff, tell us uh, how they can find us. Well, you can go ahead and rate us on iTunes. And if you can, please um, also leave a little review. It'll help people find us. If you have any questions or comments and want to contact us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. There is also a Facebook group. 
uh, Appendix N Book Club. And you can find us on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>